you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn with us to 2 Samuel chapter 11? It is page 262 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you are using that. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Thank you, Steve, for helping me you are read welcome, the text. Sir. Appreciate that. Hear the word of the Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. <clears throat> So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then... If the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Ahimelech, the son of Jerobasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, 
so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Thank you, Steve. When we think we are invincible, we are really in great danger. Napoleon thought he couldn't lose. He came against the Russians and other allied forces at the Battle of Leipzig, and he was soundly defeated in October of 1813. This defeat defeat opened the door for the allied forces to remove him as leader of France, in 1814 and sent him into exile on the Isle of Elba. In 1941, Hitler also made a big mistake, thinking he could defeat the Russians. He had his forces on, uh, on the western side fighting the French and British, and then he thought it might be a good idea to try to go after the Russians on the eastern front. And he went to Russia in the winter. It's not a very smart thing to do. It's not a good strategy. He wanted to capture Moscow before Moscow captured Berlin. But his plan failed. Interestingly, my grandfather fought for the Germans on the Eastern Front in Russia. But we're not as strong as we think we are. And we should never think that we can't fall into great sin. When we hear of a prominent pastor falling morally, it shocks us initially. But we should know that that moral failures can happen to anyone at any time. And hear me now, it doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter how many Bible studies you've been a part of. It doesn't matter that your name's on the Sunday school roll. For me, it doesn't matter how many sermons I've preached or how many lessons I've taught. If it can happen to a man after God's own heart, it can happen to any one of us. That's why I entitled the message this morning, Take Heed lest ye also fall. Take heed, you're not as strong as you think you are. The late Howard Hendricks, great Bible teacher, 
conducted a study of 246 pastors that fell morally, and here's what he found. Number one, none of those men had accountability. None of those men had accountability. In case you don't know, I've been meeting with the same man every week for probably the last 20 years, except when we lived in Louisville. And I'm thankful for my dear friend that meets me at 6.45 every Thursday morning with coffee and a bagel to see how your pastor is. He doesn't go to this church. I'm thankful for that man. Number two, the men were not in daily communion with God in prayer and in Bible reading. That had kind of gone to the wayside in their life. Number three, more than 80% became involved with the woman after spending time, more time with her during and after counseling. It was those counseling times that often that led to uh, the connection there. And then number four, and this is my point, my, my main point, number four that he found, without exception, each pastor thought it could never happen to them without exception. Well, we have quite a narrative here, don't we? You've been waiting for this? And it's one that will change David's life forever. Things won't ever be quite the same with him after 2 Samuel 11. We know God forgives. We're going to see that next week. But we do reap what we sow. We do reap what we sow. Now, let me make a few brief observations about the text, give you a general structure, and then we'll dive into the message here. So just some brief observations. And number one, I, I, I hope you see it. The author slows down to tell this story. Do you remember from last week with all these little battles going on? We just get maybe just a one-verse snippet. The Ammonites fled. The Syrians fled. That's all we got. We didn't get any details. The author slows down. We get a few more details in this incident, don't we? So that, that should tell us something as well as the author's writing and we pick up on the author's style. Okay, maybe we also need to slow down and think about the message being declared. The second thing is this. The author provides more detail but not so much discourse. Did you notice that? There wasn't just a lot of conversation, especially from Bathsheba and Uriah. Bathsheba has one line. It's actually two Hebrew words. I am pregnant. That's her one line. <laughs> okay. Uriah has one verse, and oh, what a verse it is. David talks a bit more. But what's interesting here, one thing that we see, Uriah is the one who stands out as the faithful Israelite. Does he not? I mean, I think it's pretty clear who the faithful one is. And it's, it's Uriah. Faithful to his wife, faithful to the nation and the cause. The third thing that I find interesting here. The author skips the feelings. 
The author only provides the bare facts, and never mind the pun. And the emphasis is on David's deed. He says nothing whether Bathsheba baited David or whether she thought it an honor to have a fling with the king. The writer does not tell us how Uriah was thinking through this. Did he get wind of it and behave like he did to get back at the king? I, th- I, think, there was, I think there was talk going on, personally. Don't know that, but I think there was. We simply don't know. And what about Joab? What did he think of David's plan? He carried it out, and he actually improved upon it. Because it wasn't just Uriah that died, but there were other men that died too, so Uriah's death wouldn't look obvious. <laughs> and we heard truth from Joab last week, and, and I said, okay, if Joab speaks truth from the Lord, do you listen? Yes, but Joab's kind of a wily character, isn't he? He improves upon David's plan. So the writer silences his feelings to focus on what David did. A fourth thing, fourth observation, are the ironies that are in this text. I I think you probably saw them. Number one, Bathsheba is a, she's concerned about the law. She is bathing because she is purifying herself. She's concerned about the law, but cares nothing for God's moral law. It seems like this, a uh, lonely Palestinian housewife has no problem also doing what she did. Another irony, Uriah is disobedient to the king, but his faithfulness explains his disobedience. Go home. Go to your wife. He wouldn't do it. His faithfulness explained his disobedience to the king. Thirdly, David is asking about peace. He brings Uriah back. Tell me about how the war is going. How's everything going? Is everything peaceful there? Is everything good? While he is doing all he can to destroy a marriage and take a life. Another one. Joab's instructions to the messenger... Assume David has always opposed unnecessary bloodshed in war. But David finds it welcome news when Uriah and the others have been killed. He's going to tell Joab at the end, oh, it's really no big deal. Don't let this bother you. Move on. Press on. More battles ahead. It's okay. And fifthly, the writer does all he can to put the responsibility squarely on whom? David. David, the lustful adulterer. David, the gracious host. He tre- I mean, he treats Uriah pretty, pretty well, doesn't he? Initially. David, the murderous schemer. David, the understanding commander. I think the best way to divide the text structurally is simply this, the characters, David and Bathsheba, David and Uriah, David and Joab, and then David and God. Do you see that at the end? 
Well, let's look at the first thing here I want us to see is this. David falls dramatically. He falls dramatically. This is verses 1 through 5. We saw the contrast of chapters 9 and 10 to this one, chapter 11. In chapter 11, it is not hesed that drives David. It's not covenant love, but it is lust that drives David. Eros would be the Greek term. Lust drives him. The action in chapter 11 is quick. The verbs rush as David's lust rushes. It was late one afternoon, and notice the verbs. He arose, he walked, he saw, David sent, David took her, David lay with her. The sin doesn't seem to take too long, does it? It seems to go, it seems to progress rather rapidly. The woman gets two verbs. She returned home and she conceived. Nothing but action. No conversation. There's no hint of caring, courting, or loving. Only lust. Pure lust. The author doesn't even call her by name initially. uh, The woman conceived. She's the woman. But the two verbs that really matter are the, uh, the, uh, the, yeah, the two verbs that really matter are this. He took her and she conceived. She conceived. Let me ask you a question. Is this the king God chose? Is this the man after God's own heart? The message is so clear for us, even though we live 3,000 years later, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, no matter how many times I've attended church, it doesn't even matter if I read the Bible this morning and had prayer time, I can fall by supper. It was late one afternoon. When David woke up that morning, there's no indication he was just looking to commit adultery and start to cover up and plan a murder. See how quickly? There's a point here I think we should remember. We can't draw out our spiritual lives like we draw money out of a savings account. You have a savings account for a rainy day, and when something bad happens, what do you do? You dip into it and pull that money out to sort of cover everything. You can't just put back spiritual savings and draw it out when temptation comes. It's a daily battle, is it not? You can't just put spiritual savings in the bank and say, well, just because I read my Bible this morning and prayed, it's not going to happen to me by supper. It's a daily battle and we must be vigilant. We can't coast through our days thinking we have spiritual savings to help us in that moment. We need to seek the Lord every day. Are not our hearts prone to wander? Lord, we feel it prone to leave leave the God we love. God, here's my heart. Take and seal it. 
Let your grace like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. We must be vigilant to guard our hearts. We need to be killing sin every day or sin will be killing us. As John Owen said, Proverbs 4, 23 to 27, Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. That's good advice. We must be wise and especially leaders. And you should pray for me. Jim Sr., praise this, what I'm about to say to you, praise this for me. Lord, give Bill eyes only for his wife. That's what one of, one of our church members prays for me. Thank you, Jim, for praying that for me. Because we are all prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. You know who wrote that hymn? His name was Robert Robertson. He had been converted under the ministry of George Whitfield in 1752. Later became a Baptist pastor in Cambridge. Toward the end of his life, he had again the testimony given in to frivolous habits. One day during this time, he was traveling by stagecoach. Another passenger, a lady and a total stranger, was going over some hymns, and she was singing this hymn that he wrote, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And she said, this song, this hymn has been such a blessing to me. Wouldn't you say that as you sing it? I love this hymn. It's been such a blessing. Well, she was as she continued to speak about the hymn, he blurted out, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Even then, he was away from the Lord, and he knew it. So don't think for a second that you are so strong and think that it could never happen to you. So let me ask a, a, a very pertinent question here. Are you entertaining thoughts for someone who is not your spouse? Married folks, are you entertaining thoughts? Would you guard your heart against that? There, there's another very obvious point about David's drastic fall. It's right here in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But what does it say? But David remained in Jerusalem. You see, David sinned when he should have been busy doing something else. The Ammonite war, as I said last week, is the backdrop for chapter 11. David should have been at war with the other kings. 
David was idle when he should have been busy. Idleness makes us vulnerable. So does physical tiredness, by the way. I think some, some of those times when you're most tempted are those times when you're so physically exhausted and your guard is down and the enemy comes after you and tempts you with sin. You see, we should be occupied with what God has called us to do. And then maybe we wouldn't be in this problem. We wouldn't have this issue. Think of this. So much of sin can be precluded if we are simply wise and do what God tells us to do. If we have accountability, it's a lot harder to get away with it. Okay, just, just something is having accountability in your life. We need other believers in our lives. We, won't, we need someone that won't let us get away with lies that will ask the hard questions. We need to be occupied doing what God has called us to do. Sin can be precluded. If you are exhausted late at night, what should you do? Thank you, Greg. Go to bed. Don't get on that computer where you're one click away from disaster. Go to bed. Don't surf the net or don't scan through the TV channels. Go to bed. Don't expose yourself to the temptation. David should have been at war. But there were cracks in David's spiritual armor and I want to tell you, sin filled the cracks and exposed his sinful heart. So we see David fails dramatically. Secondly, David seeks to hide what he's done. Yeah, it's, it's one thing for the adultery, but the next thing is to plan a man's murder. And that's verses 6 through 25. David gets what he wants. What did he want? That's it. But the palace secret hits a snag. It's Bathsheba's only words, I am pregnant. Probably could have got away with it were it not for that, right? I am pregnant. But David still thinks he's in the driver's seat. David sends for, asks, orders, lavishes gifts upon Uriah, but he can't control Uriah who continues to sleep with the palace servants rather than in his own bed with his wife. You see how he wants to cover this up? And he can't understand why Uriah does not want supper, a shower, and sex. What's wrong with this man? And David hears his reply in verse 11. Did you hear his reply there? The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field, shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do such a thing. <laughs> that, that must have sent chills down David's spine when he said that. The core of David's plan is to get Uriah to spend the night with his wife. If he can do that, he might be able to cover it up. 
Now, David could ask for forgiveness here, couldn't he? Couldn't he? He could own up to it right here. But he doesn't. Again, I wonder if Uriah heard palace servants talking about it. We know how tongues wag. Now, we'll see this next week. But forgiveness is only precious when we feel the heinousness of our sin. David is not feeling that right now until he's confronted by Nathan the prophet. David hardens his heart. The conviction is deep, but he really thinks he can get away with it. We should remember that verse in Numbers, be sure your sin will find you out. David hardens his heart. How do we know? He writes Uriah's death sentence, and Uriah carries it to his boss. Did you see that? All that matters to David now, since he can't get him in the bedroom with his wife, is to kill him. Boy, where's the Hasid? Where's the covenant love here? Joab and the Ammonites will be more than happy to comply with David's request. They love blood. And David engineers the whole thing. Isn't this this how sin works in our life? Does not sin snowball? It starts with one, and then it goes to something else, and deception, and lies, and in David's case, even murder. It controls us, doesn't it? Remember when Paul said, don't let sin have dominion over you. Sin has a certain reign, a power over us. Do we not need the gospel? Are we not thankful for Christ? We need the gospel to break the power. Even if we know better, it becomes all-consuming. David has tried to get Uriah to his wife. He can't do that. So now he orchestrates his death, and not only his, but we'll see how Joab expands the plan, and others die because of it. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, wrote this, First we practice sin, then we defend it, then we boast in it. I mean, at, at the end of this, David's telling Joab it's really not a big deal. Hosea, chapter 4, verse 7, speaking of the children of Israel, the more they increased, the more they sinned. They just kept sinning. One sin leads to another, then another. And after David's plan to kill Uriah, of course, now Joab is involved. It's very interesting. Joab is scheming too. Joab knows something about David that nobody else does. He's in on it. He has privileged information about David. If David gets mad about going too near the city, he tells his servant to ask. Or or if Ahimelech is getting killed, tell him, your servant Uriah is dead too. David, don't complain about my tactics in battle. Uriah is dead. I wonder how many things happen in life that are due to a kind of bribery. One person has information about another, 
and it's controlling what that other person is doing. Joab has leverage on David. If David confesses his sin, what happens? The leverage is gone. The leverage is gone. If David confesses, it's over. The messenger comes and tells David that Uriah is dead and others too. And verse 25 is so telling about the hardness of David's heart. David said to the messengers, Thus you shall, you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. David's attitude is, you win some, you lose some. Brush it off and move on. The death of Uriah and others will not come under my condemnation, but it will come under God's condemnation. What's interesting to me is 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 39, names Uriah as one of David's mighty warriors. He's one of David's 37 mighty men. Uriah the Hittite and David's scheme to take out a man who was so loyal to him with Hesed. Well, the last thing here, what's the bottom line in all this? It's verses 26 to 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son and what's the last line there but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord apparently it's all over but the weeping Bathsheba the wife of Uriah receives a letter of notification and condolences from the army and she engages in the usual mourning rituals we don't know how she really felt though do we we might like to know, I mean, really, how did she feel? She might have been going through all the motions. Or she might have had genuine grief. But David brings, David brings her into the palace. She becomes David's wife. And nine months later, she has a baby. And just like that, you might think, wow, David got away with it. Is he really enjoying the favor of God? What's going to happen nine months later? God will strike the child. So that's next week. Do you read ahead? Okay, come, come next week. What does the text tell us? The thing that David did displeased the Lord. The sentence is literally translated, the thing David did was evil in Yahweh's eyes. If you translate David's message to Joab in verse 25, literally, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. That's verse 25. You see the contrast. Yahweh won't brush it off. David will have to suffer the consequences of his deed. And we call this point the bottom line because it literally is the bottom line of the chapter. The thing David did was evil in Yahweh's eyes. 
The author has told us a story about lust and sex and deceit and murder with no moral footnotes along the way. You might think that God didn't see it. You might think that God didn't know about it. But the author clues you in at the end. God did see it. God did know about it and it was evil in his sight. The silence of God does not mean the absence of God. Psalm 11 verse 4. His eyes gaze upon, his eyelids test the sons of men. Can you see God? No, but he can always see me. Because evil runs on its course does not mean that God is not watching it. There's a mystery in this, isn't there? Sometimes it appears that injustice goes on and God is doing nothing about it. And we cry out, Lord, aren't you there? Don't you see? Won't you stop it? I look around this world today and ask, please God, intervene in this injustice. And then that injustice continues. If God hates injustice, why doesn't he stop it? Well, that mystery is not solved in this text. God will be God. He is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. But one thing might be very clear. God might be silent, but he is not without sight. He sees all and he knows every heart. David doesn't get away with it and he will face God's rod. So David is no different than each of us. Amen? David is flesh and blood. David would fall. We fall too. We fall too. We're going to conclude by singing a song that many of you know, some of you might not know it, but it's called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And I, I love this song because I, I know how uh, even after I sin, I know Satan tempts me to despair. When I, when I have that guilt in my life, and sometimes I think my faith might fail, but he will hold me fast. Okay, I'm thankful for his grace to bind my heart like a fetter. Okay, And were it not for his grace, let me tell you, there's no telling what we would be involved in if it weren't for his restraining grace. But take heed lest you fall. It's, it's a simple message, but I know it hits us all. So Lord, we need your grace today. I'm thankful that he will hold us. He will hold us fast. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word today, for your truth. This text speaks very, very clearly to all of our experiences that, that are in this room. And Lord, we just humbly ask for your help. We do not want to harden our hearts against you right now. Lord, we want to confess our sin. Thank you that there is mercy in Christ. And I'm amazed that you would use any of us. I, I really am, particularly me, the sin in my heart. And Lord, yet you are full of grace. 
And even after David's fall and our fall, we find forgiveness and mercy in your hand. And at the end of the day, for the child of God, you will hold us fast now and forever. So what hope that gives us uh, in the midst of our struggle. Let us not lose heart. Let us not lose hope knowing that there is one with a strong hand and his sheep will never perish and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.